Greetings and welcome to episode 60 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the repatriation of Japanese who were abroad, who were in the empire, the colonies, outside the the, uh, four home islands, um, throughout the duration of the Japanese empire, and the kicking out of colonial subjects who were living in the home islands of Japan. Um, Now, I've titled this episode, Sending the Japanese Home, with home in quotation marks, to highlight the, 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 the realization that for many people, uh, the post-war repatriation, all right, the sending back to your country, uh, was a profoundly disorienting and surreal uh, process for them because the Japanese Empire uh, had survived long enough and was, you know, had put down extensive enough roots throughout Asia that many people who went out into the empire or, you know, imperial subjects who came and relocated to the Japanese islands um, had been, you know, convinced that they weren't outsiders in the places that they lived. Uh, sure, there were some things, there was just, there was some discrimination and whatnot, but there was enough, enough official propaganda, enough economic integration, uh, you know, institutionalized in, integration in ideology and on the ground that uh, many people said, you know what, uh, just because I'm from Korea doesn't mean I'm not also a Japanese citizen now, where, you know, I'm a Japanese imperial subject. You've spent 40 years trying to convince me uh, that I'm not necessarily an outsider, a, an alien. Uh, you've, uh, you know, Taiwanese, uh, 50 years of Japanese uh, ethnic propaganda telling you that you are assimilating, you are becoming Japanese, and then poof, boom, instantaneously, you're not Japanese, go home where you belong. Even though for the last 50 years, we've been telling you, you belong here. Um, So for many people, the sort of unmixing of the Japanese empire uh, was a, a, a very turbulent Uh, disorienting process in which they're being told something that directly contradicts the reality that they've held dear to themselves for many decades in some cases. Um, So how did this repatriation process work? Um, Well, let's start off with sort of some statistics to give you an idea of the numbers that we're dealing with. Um, You have about 72 million people who are considered to be Japanese home island nationals, all right? You're of Japanese descent, you grew up on the Japanese islands, or your ancestors uh, uh, are from the Japanese islands, and you went out into the colonies, all right? Uh, About 72 percent of the population of Japan who are seen in this category, about 6.9 million of them are outside the home islands. They are in the colonies. All right, that's 9% of the total population of Japanese, to use the terms that we would be using today, all right? Uh, uh, Through and through Japanese, okay? Uh, Almost 10% of the entire population are abroad, all right? They're not in the home four islands, Hokkaido, Honshu, Shikoku, Kyushu. Of these 6.9 million Japanese who are uh, in the empire, in the colonies, you have about 3.2 million of them are civilians, and 3.7 million of them are soldiers. So roughly half and half, although the soldiers slightly outnumber them. Okay. Uh, Now, of the 6.9 million, 6.7 million of them, all but 200,000, will eventually be sent home to the Japanese home islands, all right, repatriated 
you know, the, the term re repatriation itself, uh, you know, is sort of uh, has some ideological assumptions within it. The, you know, the very verb itself tells you that you're being sent back to your 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 fatherland, uh, where 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 you're supposed to come from. Um, it already assumes that you can't be naturalized uh, uh, outside of your homeland. Uh, there's no such thing as a Manchurian that the Japanese were trying to create this new identity of a, of, of a Manchurian in Manchukuo. Uh, no, that doesn't exist. The only natural identity you have is Japan, Japanese, and you have to be repatriated to that. All right. Uh, so all but 200,000 of these Japanese abroad will be eventually sent back home uh, to the Japanese home islands. Five million of those will be forcibly repatriated by the allies who occupy these lands. And the rest, about 1.7 million, will simply go back on their own. They'll find their own way back. Um, more specifically... Where are some of uh, uh, these uh, Japanese abroad? Uh, you have about one million of them. All right, about one million of them are in Korea. About 582,000 of them are in Taiwan. And the rest mostly in China. Okay. Um, also, conversely, uh, well, not conversely, but in tandem with this, you have about one and a half million Koreans who are in Manchuria, uh, more accurately, who are in Manchukuo. Remember, Korea... It's 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 only land border uh, essentially you know uh, all except for a tiny little sliver that borders Russia you know is that that's access to the port of Vladivostok uh, the vast majority of its only land border is with at this time Manchukuo okay um, and so it's very natural for Koreans if that is not really a meaningful border anymore uh, it's natural for Koreans then to cross over that Manchurian border in great numbers and you get 1.5 million Koreans who are in Man uh, Manchukuo by 1945 all right Koreans in general migrated the most of Japanese colonial subjects all right it was uh, the earliest colony that had a massive population um, and many Koreans, we also, we, 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 we've long talked about the particularly harsh punitive measures that were implemented in Korea. What often does not get emphasized much in the historical literature on this is that, uh, yes, Japanese rule in Korea was particularly brutal, punitive, contested, and all this. Um, and yet Koreans, we know, uh, almost, you know, at least some of them, seemed almost to embrace, embrace is probably too positive a word, but engage the Japanese empire, more than any other colonial subject that the Japanese had. All right, perhaps because it was the most convenient for them. I mean, Taiwan's an island far in the south. The closest area to Taiwan that Japan's eventually going to have is going to be China. Uh, but that, they're not actually going to have the, set, the heartland of China until World War II breaks out in 1937. Uh, the Japanese already have significant interest in Manchuria, um, which is right next to Korea, um, you know, in the first, second decade of the 20th century. So, you know, almost the exact same time that Japan takes over Korea uh, formally in 1910, they, they already have significant, uh, uh, you know, concessions in Manchuria. And so Koreans are naturally going to engage that, uh, even as their, their, their homeland, the Korean Peninsula, is the subject of more punitive, harsh Japanese rule. Another contradiction there. Just because Japan Japanese rule in Korea oftentimes is not all that pleasant doesn't mean that a large number of Koreans didn't willingly engage the empire and try to take advantage of new opportunities that their presence in an expanding Japanese empire ultimately gave them. Many of these 1.5 million Koreans who were in Manchuria uh, ended up staying 
Okay, they ended up staying uh, uh, along with about two hundred thousand um, uh, uh, Japanese in various uh, places. So you have a large number of Koreans who had migrated to Manchukuo, and after forty-five, they end up staying in Manchukuo. There is a, a Korean so-called autonomous region uh, along the border of North Korea today, which is a recognition by the People's Republic of China, the Communists, after they came to power, that we have a you know a large enough number of of, uh, Koreans who are living um, within our borders now, within Manchuria, that they should have their own autonomous region to recognize their, their significant presence in the new Chinese state, and that is still there today. Um, and you will also have about 200,000, about 200,000 Japanese um, who will actually stay behind, uh, who will stay behind in Manchuria. All right. Um, you also have the reverse direction, uh, colonial subjects living in the Japanese islands. Okay, who migrated in the other direction. Here you have about 2.3 million colonial subjects who live in the Japanese home islands. Again, the Koreans are by far the most. You have about 2 million Koreans who have taken up residence in the Japanese home islands. About 200,000 Ryukians, all right, Okinawans, essentially. Um, you have 56,000 Chinese and about 35,000 Taiwanese. And remember also, from our uh, episode on the Kominka movement and the assimilation of Taiwan and Korea into the military, by this point, you also have roughly 200,000 uh, Taiwanese and Koreans each, 200,000 Taiwanese, 200,000 Koreans, who are serving in the Japanese military. All right, and they can be sent anywhere throughout the entire empire. Um, the Allies will re re repatriate about 1 million of the 2.3 million colonial subjects who are living in the four Japanese home islands. All right. That's not that many. That's less than half. Uh, far less than the percentage of Japanese who are in the colonies who will be sent back home to the Japanese home islands. Okay, About 500,000 or half a million of the remaining uh, colonial subjects living in the Japanese home islands will leave on their own. But in the end, you still have nearly a million, uh, more accurately, about 800,000 former colonial subjects uh, who remain living in Japan. And of these, again, of course, most of them are going to be mostly Koreans. Now, uh, let's talk about the redefinition of Japan. Uh, the allied powers who have occupied the Japanese empire, they have to come to terms with what they're going to do with this empire. What is the new form of Japan going to take? Okay, the defining characteristic of the post-war era of the occupation and the repatriation was the suddenness of the imperial dismemberment of the Japanese state. Okay, the Japanese empire was taken apart by the allies instantaneously without any preparation beforehand. This is a very unique way to lose an empire. Okay, there's no prolonged negotiation, small uprisings here and there, uh, you know, uh, minor concessions here, and then finally you uh, figure out, you know, a plan for how you're going to grant independence. Think of like British India. Okay, there, you know, it, it was still chaotic. It was still a mess when it actually happened, the partition of India in 1947 when the British finally leave. But nevertheless, everyone knew this was coming for some time, and there had been uh, groundwork that had been laid. <laughs> it wasn't laid very well, uh, but there were, there were preparations for this over an extended period of time. Uh, the British knew that uh, there was a movement for a long time for independence uh, uh, among the Indians. 
Okay, uh, but with the Japanese Empire, you get very, really no negotiation between the metropolitan home islands and the colonies, no gradual coming to terms with the implications of separation. Really, the only modern analog I can think to this is the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, you know, that's in the, based in the Middle East, uh, after World War I. After World War One, the Ottoman Empire, which had stretched over uh, southeastern Europe, uh, northern Africa, and much of the Middle East, um, and obviously Turkey, where which is its biggest successor today, um, that was you know uh, a major empire in the Middle East and along the Mediterranean, um, and they get completely dismembered um, into multiple successor states after World War One. We talked about that on the episode on Micronesia, uh, the mandate system and whatnot, in which the British and French were taking over certain parts of the Ottoman Empire in a way to sort of justify turning them into colonies. All right. One little difference with the Ottoman Empire, however, is that it had been hemorrhaging colonies. It had been losing its colonies, uh, 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 specifically in the Balkans, for a hundred years already by the time of World War One. So even though what remains of the Ottoman Empire is instantly dismembered after World War One, um, you know, it, the Ottomans had been losing territories for quite some time. Uh, you know, they had been losing places like Egypt. Uh, they had been losing their uh, colonies in the Balkans and southeastern Europe. Uh, so again, that's not totally unprecedented. Uh, the Japanese Empire, there really is no precedent for what was going on here. Uh, they hadn't lost anything. It had been constant, unbroken accumulation of colonies for 50 years. And then, boom, you lose everything. Now, the guiding assumptions of the Allied dismemberment of Japan was that uh, in figuring out what the new demographic mix of the former empire is going to be, our goal is to match each population with the land that they belong in. Right? Everyone belongs somewhere. They have a natural homeland. Okay, this is, this, this is the ideology of nationalism that we all live with today. Nationalism guides our expectations of political legitimacy. That there are a certain number of uh, races or ethnic groups in the world. These races go back into the mists of time. You can trace when they actually formed. Um, and the key to achieving a global peace today is to manage to align every single race with political borders that uh, only include that ethnic group. And then that ethnic group will put into place leaders that come from their own ethnic population. Um, and of course, when people from the same race, the same culture, rule over themselves, they are going to be benevolent and do all the right things that uh, culturally alien outsiders don't do. This is a major fallacy. It's not true, uh, but it is the guiding assumption that, that uh, forms our idea of what constitutes political legitimacy today. Okay, uh, your state has to be ruled by someone who comes from you, who comes from your community in some way. And the belief, the concomitant belief to this is that conflict arises from imperfectly formed nation states from mixed ethnic co-residents. The knee-jerk assumption is that if you put different cultural ethnic groups together, uh, this will create inevitable conflict. All right? there's, there's no way that they'll be able to coexist peacefully. Uh, this flies in the face of uh, you know thousands of years of human history in which you find out that people have always been mixed all the time. And most of the time, uh, we get along with people who are radically different than us with no issues whatsoever, and we all go about our merry lives, and it's not a problem, okay? Um, but we want to now, we want to segregate ethnic groups into their own states. And if we assemble nation states perfectly, in which nation and state perfectly align, there'll be no possibility of conflict, 
All right, Japan is not unique in the post-war environment in this regard. Uh, the Germans, uh, the uh, uh, territorial holdings that the Germans, the Nazis, were able to accumulate during World War II in Europe were also subject at this exact same time period to mass forced migrations to try to fit everyone into ostensible nation-states. They said, look at this, 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 this messy demographic ethnic map of Central and Eastern Europe. We have Germans, Jews, Poles, Slavs, uh, Czechs, uh, all mixed in together. All right? This is why you had conflict, it was said. All right? The German justification for invading Czechoslovakia or invading Austria and all these other places was precisely that they said, hey, we have German co-nationals in these states and they're being oppressed by culturally alien, ethnically alien uh, leaders in those states, we're liberating our our, our brethren uh, in order to create a German nation state. That was the whole justification. All right, maybe that's not the reality of why they did it, but that was how you justified doing what you were doing. Uh, again, the basis of political legitimacy, and that that assumption guides the dismemberment of the German Empire as well, just like it guides the Japanese Germ- uh, uh, dis- the dismemberment of the Japanese Empire. 12 million Germans would end up being expelled from quote-unquote non-German lands. There is a German homeland, this is the assumption, and we're going to fit all the Germans in there. Um, and if we find any Poles or Slavs or you know anyone else in here, we're going we're to put them into another state. And they're going to get their own state. All Poles go to Poland. All Germans go into Germany. And they say, what about the Jews? Well, we need to, we need to find their own state too. Uh, that's why all this stuff happens, because Jews are mixed in everywhere. Uh, that's not good for them. Solution? Israel. Let's find a place in the world where we can create a pure Jewish state. And they come up with Israel. Only problem is, uh, that's not really possible. The land that you gave to, to the Jews uh, that, that becomes Israel already has a whole bunch of Palestinians living there. Uh, yeah, there were Jews there as well, and they had managed to coexist quite peacefully for a long time. Uh, but now you're going to come in and say, no, this is going to be the Jewish homeland, everyone else out. You can see the new problems that these ideologies create. Okay, so SCAP, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, uh, it it expects that all colonial subjects in Japan are going to go back to their own nation-states. A very unnatural geopolitical agenda that uh, uh, Japan had not, uh, you know, this is not an ideology that's guiding the Japanese empire. Uh, They're saying we all belong together in one state, uh, not that you should have your own state. All right. Um, Now, so the colonial subjects in Japan have to go back to their own state. And likewise, it also becomes self-evident that all Japanese abroad must come back to their home in Japan. The empire is now said to be an unnatural aberration created by aggression. We will now reassemble the puzzle, (laughs) reassemble the demographic geographical puzzle back to what it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, what it's supposed to be is subjective and subject to the whims and agendas and desires of the victors. Okay, be that as it may. First things first, what is Japan? What is Japan? You know, I mean, this is actually seems like a really simple question, but it's not. I, I often ask this question, what is Japan? When I'm teaching Chinese history, I ask, what is China? And you find out that it's actually really complicated. Um, and our facile, easy assumptions of what these things mean, uh, if, you, if you actually look into history, you find out that there's no constant definition of what these things are. There's only change. 
All right, China and Japan. Uh, if you look through history, you'll never find any any era of history in which the modern day political boundaries of these states, whether it's China, Japan, uh, were ever replicated by any state in history, ever. Let that sink in. Is there an eternal China? <laughs> Uh, no, not if the borders have uh, been different uh, every 50 years throughout history. And that there's never been a state in history that had the exact same borders as the PRC. How can you talk about eternal China? Uh, Japan, you go back to the Heian period of 1500 years ago. Uh, those early states, they didn't have control over all the islands. Hokkaido certainly wasn't in there. The Ryukyus weren't in there. And when they were, they were in there in sort of a gray area. They weren't fully seen to be a member of the, you know, the home uh, uh, islands. We talked about, you know, there were originally three home islands. Then there's four home islands. Then there's the Ryukyus. Um, and then not long after you've sort of partially integrated Hokkaido and the Ryukyus, you get Taiwan. Is Taiwan the fifth home island? These are not obvious questions. We naturalize them in our minds, and then we project backwards. Oh, Japan is now these home four islands. Uh, therefore, in history, we'll always uh, take as our standard reference point, this is the homeland of Japan. And that's just not how things work. So, what were the assumptions at the, in 1945 of what constitutes Japan? Well, they said, not surprisingly, they came up with the definition that we now have naturalized in the 70, 80 years since the end of World War II. The four home islands plus minor outlying islands plus maybe Okinawa. And that is your definition of Japan today to this very day. Uh, Okinawa still is a place that is, has this, this, this scent, this whiff of the other. Uh, yes, it's formally a part of the Japanese state, but that's also where you have these massive American military bases. Um, not only that, Okinawa will also be formally cut off from the Japanese home islands in the beginning with sort of this wishy-washy language on paper that maybe that's a part of Japan or not. We'll see. What was the cutoff date for what uh, constitutes the the Japanese home islands and the minor outlying islands, uh, 1895. Okay, now we've talked about why that's often seen as the beginning of the Japanese empire. All right, the first time you have a formal international war that is declared, you win the war, and this territory comes as a spoils of war. And then in hindsight, you uh, when empire has become a nasty word, in hindsight, you say, okay, this is the beginning of Japanese greed, Japanese aggression, uh, taking territory from uh, 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 other states. And so retroactively, you say, okay, empire starts in 1895. Okay. Uh, but from other perspectives, you could say this is a totally arbitrary cutoff date. All right. If you want to define empire in different ways and the integration of states in different ways, you could say uh, with Hokkaido. It's an empire. With the Ryukyuan Islands, it was an empire. And then you'd have to push your date earlier back. Right. Karafuto and the Kuril Islands will be given to the Soviets. Remember, the Japanese had those. And they naturalized them. This is a part of Japan. Remember that. Karafuto, that's the southern half of Sahalin Island. That's the next long, elongated, hot dog-shaped island to the north of Hokkaido. Now it's a part of Russia. And you think, oh, naturalized. This is a part of Russia. Uh, for 50 years, uh, I'm not that sure that was 50 years, I think it might have been 35 years they got that, I believe, the southern half of Sahalin they got in 1905 after they won the war with Russia. All right, so for 30, for, well, 30, what am I doing here? My math's all wrong. 40 years. <laughs> 45 minus 5 is 40. 40 years. They had the southern half of Sahalin. So uh, should we say that, you know, all right, that was also a really long time. 
that's only 10 years less than Taiwan. Uh, so was Taiwan the fifth island, uh, is the southern half of Sahalin, then uh, 5.5? Uh, <laughs> so there were 5.5 home islands? Uh, Karafuto, which is what they called the southern half of Sahalin, it was often treated as an integral part of Japan. It wasn't even usually seen as colonial subjects. These are direct uh, Japanese settlers uh, displacing the equivalent of uh, Ainu people, people from the larger Amur Basin ecosystem. Um, and that wasn't even seen to have some sort of ethnic difference that you had to overcome all that much. Um, so that was an integral part of Japan. Nope, you don't get that. That's gone. It goes to the Soviets now. That's not a naturalized part of the Japanese state after 1945. The Kuril Islands, those were Jap Japan as well. That, that sort of, uh, it's a string of islands that extends from Hokkaido to the northeast instead of sort of to straight to the north and a little bit to the northwest. If you keep following the Kurils, you'll end up in the Bering Sea. Okay. Um, now, you all, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> something in my throat. You also have to redefine uh, who the people are who uh, uh, were encompassed within the Japanese Empire. All right. Uh, no more categories uh, of imperial subjects. You're all imperial subjects. No more categories of your Japanese subject of Korean race or Chinese descent. Yeah, you're going to be assimilated one day, uh, but for now, this is what your category is. There, there were various categories like this. You have to have brand new categories that are going to be created. Okay? Um, and in 1947, you get new categories. You are either a third country national or a resident foreigner. If you are a colonial subject living in Japan, you're not an imperial subject anymore in which you could, you know, plausibly believe that there's nothing different between me, a Korean who lives in Tokyo, and a Japanese whose parents had been here for 500 years. You could say we're both imperial subjects. Not anymore. You have a new labor, a new label. All, right. All colonial subjects living in Japan will lose Japanese nationality unless they obtained that nationality through adoption or marriage. The result is that just like the eventual Japanese who will return from the colonies to the Japanese home islands, colonial subjects in Japan will be seen as unwelcome economic burdens and a reminder of the suffering that the empire brought upon people who never left the home islands. It's your fault. Why did we get firebombed and have a nuclear bomb dropped on us? Why do we have a foreign occupying force in our islands now? Uh, because of the empire. Uh, who's the visible sign of the empire around us? You, Korean. You're blamed now. And legally, you're no longer uh, uh, you know, a resident of Japan, an imperial subject like you once were. Okinawa, as I alluded to just a minute ago, will be totally severed and not considered a part of Japan initially. All right, you want to you want to dive into the subjectivity that's involved here and how we define what a state is actually composed of. Whose homeland is it? Well, where does Okinawa fit into this? It's a very fuzzy area. SCAP, the occupying Americans, originally said that the Ryukians and the Japanese are quote different people and deserve separate homelands. Well, that's actually a pretty a pretty clear statement. Why are they saying that? Because they want to occupy it themselves. <laughs> Right here's here's the the the, the selfish uh, uh, you know agendas that get uh, come into play when we realize uh, these boundaries these borders the people who are considered to be of a certain race 
or of a certain nation state, how arbitrary sometimes those decisions are because they were created in self-interest of major global powers who said it's in my interest to control uh, the Ryukyu Islands. So we're going to say, we're going to marshal selected evidence from history to say that they are not a part of Japan and ignore any evidence that they have some similarities and, you know, some cultural similarities or assimilation that's occurred. We'll ignore that and just pick the evidence that supports our geopolitical self-interest of being able to cut the Ryukyuans off of uh, the, the, the Japanese home islands. All right. Okinawa will also actually be the only part of the Japanese home islands uh, that will be claimed by foreign states. All right. The United States is actually going to take it and sever it off and say, for now, this is ours. Uh, it's not even a part of Japan. Uh, but they're not the only ones who have their eyes set on the Ryukyuans. Uh, China and the Philippines will also make claims on the Ryukyuan islands. The U.S. isn't going to listen to them, but they, they put in their formal claims on paper uh, that we also have selective historical evidence that we're going to present that shows that the Ryukyuans actually belong to us. Okay. Um, so, in accordance with this new definition, at least temporarily in the beginning, Okinawans, who were living on the four main Japanese islands to the north, were quote-unquote repatriated to Okinawa. That's where you belong. You are not Japanese now, after a hundred years of being told that you are Japanese. All right, so Okinawans are in sort of this middle ground. Where they're not grouped with other colonial subjects, but they're also not called compatriots. That's another category that you have to deal with. Now, Okinawa will eventually be returned formally on paper to Japan in 1972. 27 years after the U.S. occupies Japan and 20 years after the U.S. leaves the Japanese northern four islands and says, okay, you have now regained your sovereignty. The occupation of Japan is over, uh, but not the occupation of Okinawa. That continues for another 20 years because at the time, Okinawa was defined as not a part of Japan. When does Okinawa miraculously, magically, poof, become a part of Japan again? And the Okinawans Japanese? Uh, when it suits the American self-interest to redefine it in that sense. When does it suit the Americans to redefine uh, who the Okinawans are? Uh, when it no longer has uh, as much strategic value. When the United States in the 1970s begins to pull out of Vietnam and has other bases elsewhere in Asia that they can use. Um, when you start having a uh, rising conflict between local Okinawans and the U.S. military, when you have some Japanese demands for its return, hey, Okinawa belongs to us, they're Japanese. Eventually, after 20 years, the United States thinks, okay, there's some tensions involved here. Uh, it's not as strategically useful as it used to be. We have other alternatives, other options throughout Asia. And most importantly, Japan seems willing. You know, it's, it's our client state. Japan, by this point, is entirely a client state of the U.S. It's going to do largely whatever the U.S. wants it to do on all matters of international import. Because without the United States, you have no army, <laughs> right? You only have self-defense forces. The U.S. guarantees Japan's prominence and safety in the East Asian environment. Okay, so eventually they realize Japan will be willing to voluntarily allow U.S. bases to remain on Okinawa, okay, on Okinawa, um, you know, and that's when they say, okay, we will give up our forced imposition 
of, of American control of, of Okinawa um, and return it formally to Japan on the understanding that Japan's not going to kick us out. They know it's in their interest to let us remain here as well, but formally it'll look like Japan is authorizing this, like they're the ones in charge, although they're really not. All right, now let's talk about the allied zones of occupation. Uh, now, I made the point before that the Japanese home islands are not going to be uh, divided up, that the occupation will be solely American. And that's true for the home islands. That's true if your definition of Japan is just the definition that we work with now, the definition that has been naturalized uh, in the 70, 80 years since the end of World War II. If you take the definition of Japan to be Japan's own definition of the Japanese state prior to losing the war, then... It absolutely had allied, uh, it had different zones of occupation, just like Germany did. Because it's the entire empire. And, and the United States certainly did not occupy the entire empire of Japan. There were four different zones. All right, so the Japanese empire as a whole, if that's your definition of Japan, it was split up four ways. Very reminiscent of what happened to Germany. All right. And so let's go through and sort of give an overview of who got what. The Americans, they have the home islands, all right? They have the home four islands. They have the Ryukyus. They also have the Philippines, which they already had before World War II, uh, so you can understand why they would get that. Uh, they have Micronesia, Micronesia, the South Seas. The U.S. also takes that. We did the majority of the island hopping, had the biggest casualties, um, and the Pacific is largely ours, so we want to have all of Micronesia. They get Micronesia. Um, and then the U.S. also occupies South Korea, not North Korea. That's going to be occupied by communists. Um, but South Korea, yes. Okay, so the American zone of occupation, the home islands, Philippines, Micronesia, South Korea. This contains about 15% of overseas Japanese, about 990,000 Japanese, just about a million, all right, 15% of the total. The U.S. has no doubt about what sort of action they're going to take. They say both Japanese soldiers and Japanese civilians should be sent back to the home islands, all right? There is a belief that Japanese civilian settlers will, quote, be a constant provocation to violence, i.e. revenge, if they are left in place. All right. Uh, repatriation generally for these Japanese uh, settlers in the American zones of occupation was relatively easy to achieve everywhere except for those who had settled in South Korea. Uh, Japanese settlers who had settled in South Korea, uh, sort of like the ones who will settle in Manchuria, but the U.S. doesn't have that zone of occupation, uh, they'll lose their entire livelihood. They had set down long-term roots. A lot of them were not wealthy to begin with, um, and they found that when they were forced to leave South Korea, there was an order that in order to prevent the Japanese from sort of taking all the wealth of Korea with them back to Japan, remember at this point you're trying to have uh, reparations and you're thinking that you're going to rebalance the international world order and not uh, revitalize the Japanese home islands. Uh, you want it to be equal. Uh, the colonies should also benefit. That was the, before the reverse course in 1947. The initial order in March of 1946 was that all Japanese who have lived uh, settled in Korea must leave ASAP with only 1,000 yen. Room and board in Tokyo for one month is 1,500 yen. So that gives you an idea of the uh, you know harsh measures that are imposed. Leave right now, and you can't even take enough money to support yourself for one month in Tokyo. Okay? Um, and this was done forcibly. 
The U.S. repatriation work was uh, done the most quickly and generally with the least amount of conflict and tensions of all of the different zones. Um, and it was done most cleanly, too. The vast majority of Japanese who were in these four areas, uh, well, three areas outside of the home islands, were fairly quickly, cleanly uh, returned to Japan. And it was over by 1947. What about British zones of occupation? What did they occupy? Uh, much of Southeast Asia, which isn't surprising because their base of operations in Asia is in South Asia. It's in India. It was in Burma before the Japanese uh, in, in, invaded Burma. Uh, they had Hong Kong. They had uh, parts of the Malayan Peninsula. The British have a strong presence in South and Southeast Asia. All right. Um, so they take over places like Burma, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, and some of the islands of Indonesia. They take over New Guinea, they take over Java, they take over Borneo. This zone of occupation contained about 11% or 750,000 of the overseas Japanese. The British repatriation was slower than the American repatriation of these Japanese because primarily the British viewed the Japanese as being useful to help restore their own colonial rule in Southeast Asia. Here's you're going to get your first glimpse of an irony that you're going to see in many of the zones of occupation. Uh, your immediate response to the Japanese is punitive. You want to punish them. Uh, you want them to suffer uh, because you blame them for everything that happened um, and that you very quickly realize that, hey, there is some truth to the, to the fact that the Japanese tend to be the most educated, uh, perhaps advanced of all the other Asians with the most resources. Uh, and if they're a soldier, they often have, uh, you know, very much uh, uh, good training and discipline. Uh, the civilians oftentimes have uh, needed skills. Um, they might even speak English. They might be more likely to have some English skills than other natives. Um, they're useful. They're useful. And so the Japanese in many of the uh, British zones of occupation in Southeast Asia will be utilized as pools of labor. Uh, uh, they'll be hired to take up jobs in local security. And sometimes if they're soldiers, they'll be used in military suppression of local insurgencies. Let's check out the irony there. The Japanese invade the, uh, these countries originally, kick out the British, uh, say, we're liberating you from the white imperialists. The white imperialists come back and then hire the Japanese to suppress the native insurgencies that were inspired by the Japanese anti-imperialist, anti-Western imperialist discourse. How do you like that? God, I love history. The British repatriation is... Uh, complete more or less by 1949, two years later than the United States. Uh, Chinese zone of occupation. Yeah, the Chinese were allied victors. They had a zone of occupation. We just don't often think of it because uh, most of the zone of the Chinese occupation is what we now think of as China itself. Uh, so we don't, you know, it's been naturalized as part of China. And uh, what has been denaturalized and delegitimized is all the efforts that Japan put in place to say, no, this is something else. Remember, Russia's version of this in Mongolia succeeded because they won World War II. Japan's version in Manchukuo did not succeed because they did not win World War II. And so that becomes renaturalized as part of China. What do the Chinese get? Ironically, the Chinese don't get, as one of their zones of occupation, Manchuria. <laughs> uh, the Russians will get that. Um, they will get uh, Taiwan. 
Okay, uh, the Japanese uh, leave Taiwan. That goes back to the Chinese. The Americans from the beginning, even before the war was over, had promised the Chinese, we'll give you back Taiwan, which is a little ironic because the uh, mainland government in the 20th century uh, had not ruled Taiwan for a single day in the 20th century. The last time a central government on the Chinese mainland had ruled Taiwan was 1895. Um, and uh, since then, the Qing dynasty that actually turned Taiwan into a province has been overthrown. You have the Republic of China and then Chiang Kai-shek's national government. None of them had ruled Taiwan for a single day, but Taiwan now comes back to us. You come, you know, Taiwan is, goes back to a place, uh, a political entity that had never had it. <laughs> All right. Again, there's just so many ironies here, so many contradictions, uh, you know, that uh, um, come to light when you actually start sifting through the details. All right. So China gets to ta uh, occupy Taiwan. They get to occupy parts of northern Vietnam when the Japanese um, uh, sort of retreat from Vichy France, um, uh, Vichy French Indochina, and they also occupy, obviously, all of China south of Manchuria. This contains a big chunk of Japanese, 30%, 2 million of overseas Japanese are in the Chinese zone of occupation. All right. Now, the repatriation here is very messy. It's complicated by the Chinese Civil War. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government will end up taking a page out of the British playbook, and he'll say, you know what? These Japanese are actually quite useful. Yes, they almost destroyed us. Yes, they've uh, you know been a living hell for me for the for my entire political career. Um, but nevertheless, uh, what's pressing to me now is defeating the Chinese communists in the Civil War. I need to defeat, defeat Mao Zedong. Uh, there's a lot of Japanese soldiers who have a lot of skills, a lot of good training, a lot of good weapons. Uh, the Japanese army on the Chinese mainland was the least destroyed by war. It's not like the Navy, which had been fighting the Americans on all these island hopping campaigns and was utterly decimated, or the Air Force that was utterly decimated. In China, the army was in pretty good shape. So Chiang Kai-shek decides uh, to use many thousands of Japanese soldiers to help him fight the Chinese Communist Party. And they get immunity from prosecution in the war crimes tribunal in local Chinese courts in exchange for this. How do you like them apples? Many of these Japanese will, 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 will become so intimately associated with Chiang Kai-shek's uh, uh, nationalist government and the civil war fight against the Chinese communists in the north. They'll still be in China in 1949 when the uh, 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 nationalists lose the civil war and flee to Taiwan. Boy, thank God Taiwan went back to the, to the nationalists, right? Because now they have to flee there four years later. Many Japanese will still be in China. Are they going to flee to Taiwan? No, sorry. That's just for us. Uh, so what happens to these Japanese who were fighting for the nationalists but are now abandoned on the mainland four years after the war is over? They get captured by the communists. Uh, they get captured by the Chinese communists. What do the Chinese communists do to them? Well, they return some of them. If you were you know, a civilian or not really a soldier, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be returned quite quickly. But a lot of them were soldiers. A lot of them were soldiers. Okay, um, and in the 1950s, China will make the Chinese communists will make the decision, as I've alluded to several times in the previous episodes, the war crimes episodes, um, that they're not going to punish any of these guys severely. Many of them are sort of put in uh, holding stations, uh, prisons, uh, te for te as a temporary measure. And in the mid 1950s, they'll say, okay, we need to make a, a a big show of putting you on trial, but we don't want to anger anyone in Japan. We want to please people in Japan so that they don't like the U.S. and they like us better, and that'll under mind the U.S. occupation. So they said, okay, we're going to do a show trial 
Um, and uh, then we will release pretty much all of you. Uh, some of you will get a slap on the wrist. A few more years, if you uh, if, if if we know that you killed like you know over a thousand Chinese in brutal, horrific manner. All right, then we have to add a few more years to your sentence. But the overwhelming majority of Japanese who the communists get a hold of after 1949 um, will get a will say, all right, time served. You've already been in prison for a while, uh, and they'll send them back to Japan. In the 1950s, the PRC will send 30,000 of these Japanese back to uh, the Japanese home islands, along with 1,000 acknowledged war criminals who essentially will not pay any price other than time served uh, for what they did in China during World War II. This will not go over well with many people in China who are going to say, hey, how can you let these guys go scot-free? Uh, but hey, that's not a democracy. It's not an open media. <laughs> Their voices are going to be suppressed. Uh, they're not going to get a platform to say, uh, what about the comfort women? What about Nanjing Massacre? Uh, what about all the shit they did? Sorry, it's not in our interests to punish the Japanese right now. Uh, we also know this is a random, not really a fun fact, I guess it's just a random fact, uh, about 3,000 orphans, uh, 3,000 Japanese orphans, um, you know, the sons of Japanese families that have been living in various places, and those families uh, went back to Japan and said, we're starting a new life. Uh, the kid we had here, whether it might have been the union of a Japanese dad and a Chinese mom, or, you know, a whole a Japanese family that just couldn't take anything with them and left, uh, we know that about 3,000 Japanese orphans were left in China to be raised by Japanese parents, uh, Chinese parents. Uh, they went into Chinese orphanages and would get Chinese parents. Um, and we also know that later on they would be heavily discriminated against during the uh, Mao era. Um, Taiwan. Repatriation from Taiwan uh, was peaceful and relatively well-ordered. Uh, remember, there was about 582,000 Japanese who were living in Taiwan at this time period. Most of these Japanese were better off to begin with. They were wealthier to begin with, uh, even when they first came to Taiwan. And if they weren't, they tended to do quite well on Taiwan. Uh, you didn't have all those tensions and whatnot with Korea. Um, you know, don't take too much money back from Taiwan, like you did, like they said with Japanese living in Korea, because uh, you already taken enough from them. I don't know, Taiwan uh, tensions relatively low. Uh, these Japanese, I don't, I don't I don't, believe, had any restrictions on what they could take back. They had usually professional white-collar jobs. They were relatively easy to transfer back to the Japanese home islands. The Soviet zone of occupation, the fourth and final one. What do the Soviets get? They get Manchuria, they get North Korea, they get Sahalin, Karafuta, and they get the Kuril Islands. All right. This actually contains the largest number of Japanese uh, overseas Japanese. 2.7 million Japanese, or 41% of all the expatriates living outside of the home islands. Unfortunately, this will also be the group of Japanese who suffer the most in captivity and will have the biggest stigma upon their return to Japan, eventual return to Japan as well. Not all of them actually returned to Japan. Uh, we know about 600,000 Japanese men were taken to Siberia and put in labor camps uh, for hard labor, and many of them died uh, uh, in these labor camps. They were horrific conditions. Um, or we don't know for, for sure they died, but they never returned to Japan. About 2 million of these uh, were returned in the uh, 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 1946 and 1947. And it was said that, you know, it was just train loads of Japanese every single day, 5,500 Japanese every day in the summer of 1946, um, who are being uh, uh, offloaded to uh, the eastern coast and then sent back to Japan. 
All right, but a lot of them did not come back. A lot of them died um, in uh, Soviet prison camps. Um, the numbers here are also a little bit uncertain. We're not so clear on when the Soviets invaded Manchuria, how many of the Japanese soldiers actually died um, in skirmishes that occurred with the Soviet soldiers or even after the surrender. Uh, uh, you know, word of mouth is that the Soviets were not generally too kind to the Japanese soldiers and settlers that they found in Manchuria. Um, now, what was it like to return to Japan? Let's talk about the experience of returning to Japan. Um, you know, many of these people, uh, the idea of returning to, to, to Japan was quite weird because they had lived the majority of their life uh, abroad, outside the home islands. Uh, many of these people who are, you know, quote-unquote, repatriated to Japan had never seen Japan. You could have been born in Taiwan. You could have been born in Korea. You could have been born uh, to parents who worked for the South Manchurian Railway Station and you lived in Dalian your whole life, and you never visited Japan. You heard about it. Ideologically, you were oriented towards it, and you, heard, and you, and, and you learned about Japanese history and whatnot, um, but you had never visited the island. That would be a very common experience. And now you're said, go home. <laughs> you're like, what? Taiwan's my home. Dalian's my home. Qingdao is my home. All right? Manchuria is my home. What do you mean, return home? So that was already disorienting enough, okay? Um, but there, there was also a stigma of repatriation, all right? A stigma of repatriation that would uh, come about due to the circumstances of your quote-unquote return, all right? The first was defeat. Uh, you are the visible symbol of, de of Japan's defeat and humiliation and all of our suffering. And two, there was also a fear that you had been tainted by foreign influence. Somehow you were unclean. You're not pure anymore. You're something less than those who are on the home islands. We have many memoirs in which these so-called repatriates would be referred to by home islands, by home islanders as another race, as something not fully Japanese, some sort of distinct type of people. I'm going to read out a quote of one returnee who came back from Manchuria in 1947. He says the following, quote, My cousin Taro always referred to us as repatriates, as if we were of another race. Not real Japanese. I had first heard this term, the repatriates, at the Sasebo port when we had arrived in Japan. The man who, 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 the man who welcomed us had said, welcome home, my fellow repatriates. He had not said, welcome home, my fellow Japanese. All right, again, who are the Japanese? You already have this distinction. Ideologically, you're, everyone's assimilated. Uh, unofficially on the ground, there's a clear distinction being made between quote-unquote Japanese in the colonies and Japanese back home, and they're not one and the same people, apparently. What were some ways you could identify someone who had, who had lived a long time in the colonies or perhaps grown up there entirely? They often did not have a regional accent. All right. They spoke sort of standard textbook Japanese that wasn't associated with a particular dialect uh, from you know various cities or rural areas or you know regions of Japan. They often had weak or non-existent ties to Japanese uh, uh, hometowns. Most Japanese, you know, be, oh, I'm from here. My ancestors are from here. They might not know uh, where that even was from. There would be uh, specific perceptions of the men and women that were uh, gender specific. Uh, women who returned from the colonies were often uh, perceived to be more independent 
than the more uh, submissive, docile Japanese women back home. Uh, these women are more independent. That's not a good thing, by the way. That 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 that, that is seen as a negative connotation, um, and they're often also seen as more pr- promiscuous. All right, the very next step of independence, when it's gendered as uh, female specific, is promiscuity. Um, and uh, reports in the news media in Japan of uh, rapes that occurred when the Soviets invaded Manchuria, uh, it was assumed then that this was a common experience that many women had, even if the numbers uh, proportionally may have been quite small. Uh, it sort of tainted everyone who came back, all of the women at least. Uh, there is a fear that uh, you, you've been tainted, even if you say you haven't. How do we know that? How do we know that you have been raped by a, a Soviet soldier or you know something like that? You're just not clean. Maybe you have venereal disease. Um, and then the men, the gender-specific thing was for the men was that the men were more argumentative, okay? Uh, they were more likely to make a scene in public or, you know, be stubborn to get their way uh, as men back home who are properly acculturated and civilized and educated uh, supposedly would not do. So these returnees become a form of an internal other, not necessarily like Koreans or Okinawans or Taiwanese, but something less than full Japanese. Okay? And if you return from the Asian mainland, China, Manchuria, uh, you know, Korea perhaps, uh, there was always a, a possible fear that you had been tainted not just physically or, you know, uh, your, your, your um, personality, um, but intellectually, your mind. Uh, the fear was especially that you may have been brainwashed, uh, that you might be a communist agent. They got to you. Um, and when you come back, we got to watch out for what sort of, you know, uh, political tendencies you might have because you have communist ideas in your mind that they've implanted, even if that's not true. Now, something that was very widespread were perceptions of hygienic pollution. The returnees were imagined, rightly or wrongly, to be unclean both physically and morally by having spent long periods of residence in so-called less civilized places. This perception was strengthened by mandatory de-lysing with with DDT powder when they came back to prevent the spread of typhus. There's a quote of a Japanese repatriate who later recalled going through the disinfection process as a child. He said, quote, The American obsession with sanitized environments conveyed to us the message that we were dirty and disease-ridden. To a people who had traditionally prided ourselves on physical cleanliness and propriety, this was one more insult compounding the injury of defeat. Our children particularly resented the affront to their dignity as nozzles were thrust into collars and sleeves and DDT was pumped into their clothes and hair, turning them as white as the miller's apprentice. Everyone, without exception, got the, in, the indignity of being doused in DDT, in DDT uh, powder. Even well-off returnees from Taiwan, ladies coming back in kimonos, you all got doused. You all had that nozzle stuck into your clothes, DDT powder over your entire body. All right. Also, oftentimes, entire ships would be held in port for days uh, for as a quarantine measure to quarantine against cholera or something like that. Okay. Um, you would then also have the association of the returnees with the evils of empire and war. This is going to be the blame game, okay? Returnees felt that they were blamed for the horrors of empire and war that were brought upon the home islanders. You guys were responsible for all that, not me. The empire brought us war, and you were in the empire. I wasn't in the empire. How can I be blamed for any of this, okay? We, back in real Japan, were the real victims. The narratives of suffering 
were reserved only for those who were in the home islands when the atomic bombs were dropped or when the firebombing raids began. All right, this is your beginning of a legacy in which you're trying to construct a bubble around a Japanese nation state, an artificial nation state that you're going to naturalize as, you know, an organic entity that has always existed and always will exist. And you're going to try to disassociate it from anything negative outside of it. The Nanjing Massacre, Comfort Women, that all happened abroad. That's you guys. We didn't do that. This will help facilitate the post-war Japanese victimization narrative and the disavowal of anything that happened in the colonies. All right. It was also very difficult to economically reintegrate the Japanese who were in the colonies back to the home islands. Remember, many repatriates left Japan originally due to poverty and a lack of beneficial communal ties. Uh, In general, most migrants uh, make the hard decision to leave their homeland because things were not ideal. I mean, you leave, it's, it's tough to pick up and leave and move to another part of the world. And usually you do that because there's a variety of factors pushing you out. Uh, you see, well, hey, it might be more beneficial to leave. So many of them, unless they're coming in as sort of white-collar professionals who have skills and think, I'm going to make it big in the colonies, uh, many of them had tenuous connections to Japan to begin with, or they were marginalized in Japan to begin with. And that connection was probably seen by them in a negative light. Right? Poor villagers who settled abroad fled a problem, poverty and overcrowding. Coming back to Japan brings back that problem, but now in an apocalyptic post-war environment that has far fewer resources than it had when you first left. So most returnees are going to be seen as an additional burden in a climate that is already seen as unsustainable just with the people who are already here. And now you're coming back and you're going to add to our problems. All these millions of Japanese are going to be piled on top of overcrowded, devastated, uh, resource-poor Japan. You left because we couldn't support you in the first place. Now we can even less support you, and now you're back? This This is the worst possible scenario. And of course, the hardship will be compounded by those who come from areas where there's a, a, a limit on how much money that you can actually bring back. All right, now how are you going to survive? You don't even have money. You, can, you, you can't even bring with you the wealth of the colonies. The easiest transition will be for those who still have some sort of close family ties in Japan, uh, if you still have that, or those who left, as I said, in official capacities for white-collar jobs, um, and you're able to maintain some of your wealth, or maybe you know, the entire time you were making money in the colonies, you reinvested it back in Japanese banks anyways. So you can just return to that. All right. Um, now, finally, the last thing to talk about, the ideological legacy of uh, the unmixing, the disassemblement, uh, you know, repatriation, whatever you want to call this highly artificial process. Okay, um, this process of artificial unmixing of a so-called Japanese nation state lasted only for the duration of the Cold War. Okay, In, uh, during this time, you get the creation of the post-war myth that we still all imbibe and digest and, and regurgitate today. That uh, Japan is a natural state uh, that has existed uh, in a homogenous ethnic identity um, for since time immemorial. Okay, the Yamato people have always been around. It's one of the purest, most unbroken, homogenous ethnic groups in the world. That's bullshit. Okay. This is something that people made up one day. There's incredible diversity that the modern Japanese state came out of. All right, um, and, you, and and now you, you know you're going to say you're going to convince people 
that you are this race. They did a pretty good job of convincing people during the empire that you're all a member of this mongrel multi-directional race. It did such a good job that it was quite traumatic for many people who then immediately afterwards were told, no, no, sorry, you're not a part of this race. You're actually Korean. You're actually uh, Chinese. Um, and there's no way you can be seen as Japanese. You're Okinawan. Um, you know, and that was the opposite of what they had been told for so long. Okay, but... Japan's natural state as this homogenous nation-state confined to these isolated islands, um, that's what we are. That's what we've always been. That's the natural good state of Japan. The empire and Japanese who, were, who went out into the empire had nothing to do with eternal, peaceful Japan. And as a result, they get written out of the history textbooks. You were an aberration. You were what went wrong. So the consequences of all this is that there's no place for hybrid identities or any outsiders in post-war Japan. There's no way to explain why non-Japanese are in Japan in a positive light. And this will encourage negative interpretations of them. All right, There are still about uh, 600,000 Koreans who live in Japan today in a very ambiguous status. Oftentimes not really seen as a part of Japan, but also, you know, uh, uh, they themselves say that I'm not necessarily Korean. I, you know, we live in Japan. This is our home. But there's no ideological framework, rhetorical framework to naturalize their presence and make it seem okay. You are somehow a freak aberration, a demographic aberration. Since the 1990s, you've had the rise of Chinese immigrants there's probably about 700,000 Chinese who live in Japan today as well. Then you've got the 1.4 million Okinawans. And now in the past decade, you've got Southeast Asian migrant labor that is migrating to all the developed countries of Asia. Uh, Taiwan, I see this a lot. Southeast, you know, people, uh, uh, women from Indonesia, uh, from Vietnam, coming to Taiwan as uh, cheap brides. For Taiwanese men, uh, working as maids in Taiwanese families. Japan's the same. You see that phenomenon in Japan all the time now. Uh, what, who are they? Do they have any right to live in Japan? Can they get a residence permit? Can they, If they get comfortable enough, can they live there and raise a family? Japan has some of the most restrictive laws defining who can become a Japanese citizen and who is J J Japan that you'll find anywhere else in the world. That's a result of this post-war creation myth. But we're seeing beneath the official discourse, this Cold War artificial unmixing is coming undone. All right, Economic motivations are reconstituting the natural mixing of peoples that has always occurred throughout human history. The natural state of human beings is to mix and move across borders and live in mixed communities. That is what it has always been. And for a period of time in the Cold War, you tried to arrest this process, kick people out, define the boundaries. Ah, we created an organic, natural nation-state of Japanese. Phew! They won't create an empire anymore because that only occurs when people mix together. Okay? Um, this is happening in Europe as well. All that unmixing that occurred after World War II, we're mixing back again. You have tons of people coming from uh, former French colonies in Syria, um, in Lebanon, who have now have multiple generations who have lived in France and grown up, and the kids speak French. They, you know, largely French culture. All right, you have Turks going to Germany. Huge propor uh, proportion of uh, Turkish people who have migrated to Germany and now live there for a long time and say, you know, I'm basically German in culture and language, um, and yet I'm still seen as an other. 
Uh, and yet this sort of crossing of borders and, you know, cultural mixing has, has been the most natural thing in human history. So to sum up here, what Japanese identities have we seen? Uh, remember, identity, uh, we had this talk before. It's, it's all artificial to a certain extent. Uh, the only thing that's really natural about our identities is our language. We usually tend to communicate more and hang out with more with people we can actually understand and communicate with. So that's one thing. Um, and then on a broad regional or continental basis, there will be you know, physiological similarities, bone structure, the way that eyes look, hair color, you know, these sorts of things. Um, but that's not what usually we think about when we think of race. When we think of race, usually we have these cultural connotations that get thrown into the mix. And we don't realize that these are artificial things that are a product of, of changing fashions, of culture, uh, the type of pants and glasses that people wear, the type of makeup that they put on. That's usually actually what we're thinking about when we think of race. And in fact, that's culture, which is very ephemeral and changes quite quickly. Right? This is why people can come from all parts of the world and migrate to a country. Let's say, you know, it's like the United States. They can come from India. They can come from Europe. And the first generation immigrants will still maintain all of their old fashions, their way of dressing, uh, their way of, you know, just their whole demeanor and composure. But the second generation will start adopting the fashions of the, you know, the local culture. And then they'll be, for all intents and purposes, almost entirely indigenized with just some physiological differences remaining uh, from the place that their ancestors came from. So you have to manufacture racial and ethnic identities. It's a consciousness. It's a, it's a situational state of mind that you have to manufacture. Japan's idea of itself, who the Japanese were, was consciously remanufactured, redone after World War II, just as it had been redone for 50 years of the empire, with a host of contradictions in there for anyone who chooses to dig through them. You're all Japanese, and yet we're going to set up individual states where we liberated the Manchus, uh, where we liberated the Taiwanese from the Chinese, where we liberated the Burmese from the British, and yet somehow we're also going to try to fit you into this idea that uh, you're somehow Japanese. There's contradictions everywhere. All right? And usually we just don't let those bother us, and we don't think about it too much. Because it's much easier to take a knee-jerk, passive uh, idea of what our identities are. So before 1868 in Japan, you have no national identity. Okay, class and occupation are far most far more important for your, for your average person. From 1895 to 1945, you have ethnic plurality. No such thing as a Japanese nation state. A multi-ethnic Japanese empire composed of many different people who are being gradually convinced. So with varying degrees of success, that you are Japanese or you will one day be Japanese and probably in the distant past, somehow we were all connected together and we're bringing you back into the fold. Okay, from 1945 to 1972, you have a newly forcibly engineered Japanese nation state with the awkward exception of about 600,000 Koreans and up to 100,000 uh, Chinese. Okay, uh, but during this time period, you are convincing people. You are convincing most people who live in the home islands. You are Japanese. You are the, the Yamato race. It's not self-evident. You have to convince them of that in school and through media, but they do. That's how, you, that's how you brainwash people. You give them textbooks and they go to school for 12 years and the entire time you're being told this is who you are. This is who your ancestors are. This is your race. And you believe it. And so in that sense, a, a consciousness of a racial identity can be manufactured because you really believe in it. Until a historian comes along and shows you just how artificial and subjective and ridiculous and contradictory these labels are. 
that we think are, 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 are real. And then from 1972 to the 1990s, you have that same forcibly engineered Japanese nation state with one race that has existed since time immemorial with no place for the Koreans or the Chinese. Uh, but now you've gotten Okinawa back. Oh, suddenly, sorry, Okinawa is a part of Japan. Sorry about that. We, we, we were wrong. You are a part of Japan. So who are the 1.4 million Okinawans? Were you always Japanese? Are you going to become Japanese now? Or are you Okinawans? Who knows? It's all thrown into the mix. People are going to have different opinions about this depending on what uh, propaganda they've been exposed to, what educational materials they've been exposed to. And then today, since maybe the 1990s, you're getting the recreation of the diversity that existed prior to the rise of the Cold War, but with our awkward, widespread subscription to Japanese homogeneity myths that have been institutionalized in Japanese schools and media, uh, we still parrot these ideas about this homogenous, pure Japanese race that constitutes 99% of the population. Most Japanese have been led to believe in that as well. But we know that that's highly unnatural, it's strange, and once those borders are laid down, once Cold War tensions are over, natural migration and mixing of people picks up right where it left off. And that's exactly what's happening. And Japan, like many states around the world, are dealing with this once more. And thinking, because we think in nationalist terms, in terms of the nation state, that mixing of people, crossing of borders is weird, that's not right, that's wrong, and that's going to create conflict, when in fact that's, what, that's the most natural state of human interaction that has ever existed. And we need to come to terms with that. Um, and not stigmatize it uh, like like the you know the 20th century has convinced all of us we should be stigmatizing it. No, we should not. And Japan's dealing with this you know re re explosion of of diversity that's challenging those post war myths of the uh, pure ancient Yamato race that they've been led to believe in. Now, if you were interested in, if you find this topic particularly interesting, uh, I encourage you to read the book from which a lot of the data and statistics uh, were derived from. And it's a book by a scholar named Lori Watt. And the title of the book is When Empire Comes Home, Repatriation and Reintegration in Post-War Japan. Okay, next time, we're almost there. We just have one more episode left. That's it. Pat yourself on the back if you've made it this far. These topics many times have not been easy. But we need just one more episode to tie it all up, place a bow on top, and put the Japanese empire under the tree. What did it all mean? How are we still dealing with the legacy of the Japanese empire today? What was repressed? What was valorized? What continued in a new but largely undetected guise? All right, a lot of these things I've been throwing, throwing at you in guerrilla you know, warfare fashion, peppered throughout the episodes. I'm going to have one episode where we just tie it all together. Okay, we'll explore all of these weighty questions in our final episode, Legacies of the Japanese Empire, in episode 61 of Beyond Huaxia. Beyond <laughs> Huaxia.